Tonight, we have new reporting, which confirms something that up to this point we had only suspected. Former President Donald Trump is officially a target of the criminal investigation into the alleged mishandling of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. That news was first reported today by The Guardian, citing two people who were briefed on the matter. Multiple outlets are now reporting that federal prosecutors notified Trump in a letter that he is the target. Now, NBC News has not independently verified those reports. But Donald Trump is the person who allegedly took those classified documents from the White House and then refused to comply with the Justice Department's order to return them. So if anyone in this case is going to be targeted for potential criminal charges, it is probably Donald Trump. For his part, Trump today posted a caps lock heavy statement arguing that being the target of an investigation isn't really that big of a deal. Quote, no one has told me I'm being indicted and I shouldn't be because I've done nothing wrong. But I have assumed for years that I am a target of the weaponized DOJ and FBI. As Trump rants about why he shouldn't be charged, we are learning more about what it might look like if he is. The Washington Post was first to report today that if Trump is indeed criminally charged in the Mar-a-Lago investigation, the bulk of the indictment against him will be brought in South Florida, according to people familiar with the matter. Up until now, special counsel Jack Smith has been running most of this investigation out of Washington, D.C. But as The Guardian reports, prosecutors have concluded from the evidence that he was still president when classified documents were moved to Mar-a-Lago, meaning Trump's unlawful possession only started in Florida. Similarly, if prosecutors have also developed evidence that Trump knew he had retained national security documents after he left office at Mar-a-Lago, for instance, by waving them around or showing people, that could present hurdles to charging Espionage Act violations in Washington. Which means it is now all eyes on Florida as we await potential charges in this case. And today we saw some interesting new developments out of that state. But first, a little background. Remember, it was February of last year when we first learned that the National Archives had asked Trump to return documents he had taken with him after leaving the White House. In the days after that story broke, Trump released a statement, only it was a sort of statement that appeared to have been kind of Frankensteined together. Some sentences written by Trump's lawyers and some sentences clearly written by Trump himself. At one point, the statement switches from referring to Trump in the third person to a defensive first person narrative. Here's a quote. Following collaborative and respectful discussions, the National Archives and Records Administration, NARA, openly and willingly arranged with President Trump for the transport of boxes that contained letters, records, newspapers, magazines, and various articles. The papers were given easily and without conflict and on a very friendly basis, which is different from the accounts being drawn up by the fake news media. In fact, it was viewed as routine and no big deal. In actuality, I have been told I was under no obligation to give this material based on various legal rulings that have been made over the years. Which was a weird response even by Trump standards. That mishmash of a defense now appears to have piqued the interest of special counsel Jack Smith. Today, that federal grand jury down in Florida heard testimony from more witnesses in this case. And among the witnesses who appeared today was this guy, Taylor Budowich, Trump's former spokesman who was in charge of issuing Trump statements when this story first broke. And according to the New York Times, which sources two people briefed on the matter, one matter that prosecutors were interested in asking him about was the statement that Mr. Trump 
had his aides draft shortly after news broke that the National Archives had recovered 15 boxes of material from Trump in January 22. Mr. Budowich was Mr. Trump's spokesman at that time. The statement that Mr. Trump initially wanted to send said that Trump had returned all the presidential material he had, and a draft of that statement was put together. Now, but that statement was reportedly never sent. Instead, Trump released that Frankenstein third-person, first-person mishmash. But prosecutors have the draft statement, the one his lawyers reportedly did not want to send, the one asserting Trump had returned everything. And now prosecutors are asking witnesses about that draft statement, which begs the question, how many people around Donald Trump knew that he was still holding on to classified documents? And what exactly was in that draft statement that was never actually released? It seems like Jack Smith knows the answer to those questions. And now a grand jury responsible for bringing charges in this case, that grand jury does as well. All of that may soon be important as we await charging decisions in the criminal investigation that we can now confirm is targeting the former president. Joining us now is Tali Farhadian-Weinstein, a former federal prosecutor at the Department of Justice. Also with us is MSNBC legal analyst Lisa Rubin. Thanks for being here tonight, ladies. Uh, Tali, let me first start with you in terms of Trump being a target of the investigation. He seems to want to wave this off as it is as as if it is not a big deal. What does it mean, legally speaking, that he is a target of this investigation? It means that the Department of Justice, Alex, is going to pursue an indictment against him unless his lawyers could convince them not to do that, which is obviously highly unlikely. And it is also possible that the grand jury won't vote to indict. Uh, But those are remote possibilities. So I think we really are that much closer to an indictment of the former president. And the interesting question today has been, where might a charge relate charges related to Mar-a-Lago come? And it seems like they might come in two districts in the federal system and not just in one. So we may have gone today, Alex, from four likely indictments against the president in Manhattan in Georgia, a federal one for January 6th and a federal one for Mar-a-Lago to five two for Mar-a-Lago, one in Florida, and one in Washington, D.C. That's a lot of potential indictments. Lisa, you're in Florida. Um, Can you explain, for those of us who don't know, what it practically means to shift the locus of this investigation from Washington to Florida? Sure. Alex, many people would say that shifting the locus from Washington, D.C. to Florida is nothing good for the Department of Justice, and I'll explain why. For one, the jury pool here is considerably different, right? This is Trump country as opposed to the District of Columbia, where more than 90 percent of voters voted for Joe Biden for president. So there is some concern about shifting it here. The judges are also different. The composition of the judges on the federal bench here is one that is more appointed by Republican presidents, for example, than Democratic presidents. However, what the Department of Justice really doesn't want is to lose a motion to dismiss on the indictment on the grounds that the charges were brought in the wrong And as Tali can tell you, Department of Justice internal guidelines say charges should be brought where the bulk of the conduct occurred. 
And here, there are definitely some things within the Department of Justice's uh, eyesight right now that seem to have occurred solely within the state of Florida. For example, we've talked about the movement of boxes between places in order to play a sort of shell game with DOJ. That seems to be the type of obstructive conduct that only occurred in Florida. Similarly, if Donald Trump took out certain documents in his office in Mar-a-Lago and showed them to aides or donors or even people just having brunch at the club at Mar-a-Lago, that's something that only occurred within Florida. And what the department really wants to do is to make any charges that it brings stick and not give Trump an excuse to move to dismiss the indictment or to appeal because those charges were simply brought in the wrong place. Tali, how do you read the timing on the, the impaneling of this Florida grand jury? Because so much of the t- testimony to the the federal grand jury has been in Washington, D.C., and now in what seems like the end stages of this investigation, all of a sudden witnesses are going to testify at a separate, different grand jury down in Florida. Does that signal to you a reluctant, like, late-breaking decision on the part of the DOJ, or do you feel like this is sort of a matter of course in terms of how these things play out at the end? Well, uh, it's it's not necessarily uh, the kind of dramatic shift that some have described it to be. And here's the thing, Alex. I think it's important to remember that it's one criminal system, the federal criminal system, one set of laws. The prosecutors working in front of one grand jury can appear in front of the other. And importantly, witness testimony can be taken in one place and sent over, emailed to an agent in the other district who can read them into the other grand jury. So it is still even possible that just for convenience, they put some witnesses into the grand jury in Florida. They're going to send everything over to D.C. and indict there. But as I said earlier, and as Lisa intimated, it's It doesn't seem to be going that way. As we hone in on these charges, it does seem like the more conservative approach, so as not to be vulnerable to a motion on venue, is to bring some of the Mar-a-Lago charges in Florida and some in D.C., similar to how Manafort, Paul Manafort, was charged both in Virginia and in D.C., and he made the decision to go in front of both of those juries rather than waive venue and consolidate everything into one of those. Uh, So it might just be that the department has decided that it's better for it to have these two separate bites at the apple, not worry about a venue motion, and bring all of the charges that it had intended to bring from the start. Tali, one more question to you. I mean, we know that the the Miami District Attorney's Office down there reportedly has a robust national security division. What can you tell us about sort of the personnel that are down there working on this case? And also, if there is a jury brought after a criminal indictment, would that jury be selected from Palm Beach County, which is a part of the state that Joe Biden won and would presumably have a less favorable pool um, in terms of Donald Trump? Well, so in terms of the prosecutors, Alex, it's the prosecutors from the special counsel's office, I understand, would be bringing the case uh, in either place. Um, Again, it's a unified system. And so it it doesn't mean that they have to hand it over to prosecutors from the U.S. attorney's office in Florida in order for the case to happen there. Uh, In terms of the division that they bring it in, that does remain to be seen to me, whether it would be in Miami or in Palm Beach County. It's a unified grand jury. uh, And so they could be taking testimony in anywhere that's within that district, one of the 93 districts in the country that covers all of Southern Florida. 
Um, Lisa, in terms of what is happening, you know, in, in, in this Florida grand jury and the witnesses that are being called, is your expectation that some of these witnesses could be in legal jeopardy themselves, given the fact that, you know, as we put all the reporting together, so many people appeared to have known that Donald Trump was not telling the truth when he said he had returned everything to the federal government, that all the documents to the federal government? Yeah, and Alex, to your point, I was sort of scratching my head when we found out that today's witness was Taylor Budowich because he would seem to be one of those people who might have criminal exposure depending on what he knew and when. Certainly the fact that he consulted with Trump advisors and attorneys who told him that the statement that the former president initially wanted to make was not one that was advisable would suggest that, in fact, he was told at some point in some way hey, look, guy, he still has classified documents in his possession. And the fact that then he went out and made a number of statements to the press designed to mislead or obfuscate certainly would suggest Taylor Brinovich might have exposure of his own. Obviously, that remains to be seen. But I think some of the witnesses that they might be looking at to bring in could also, like Taylor Brinovich, have their own criminal exposure. One of the witnesses we haven't heard from yet is Walt Nauta. He's a person we've talked a lot about as the chief mover of those boxes and someone who helped Trump sort of engineer the way in which he hid documents from the department. He too could be a witness here. He hasn't yet testified before a grand jury to the best of our understanding. Uh, And all I know is we are getting a ton of new reporting on this case, which suggests that Maybe more people know what's going on in it, which suggests maybe it is indeed coming to a close, which means clear your calendars, everybody. Tali Varadian, Weinstein and Lisa Rubin, thank you both for your time tonight. Thanks, Alex. We have a lot to get to tonight, including a big development in the other special counsel investigation into Donald Trump involving Trump whisperer Steve Bannon. That is next. Plus, the hazards of climate change were made not only visible but physically palpable for much of the United States today. And guess what Republicans were doing? That's coming up. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. Hey, everyone, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? We're back with another installment of our special series with Pod 2024, The Stakes. I'm talking to experts about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump's records on specific policy areas during their time as president. This week, a biggie. AbortionEveryday.com founder Jess Valenti on the stakes of reproductive rights. Conservatives, Republicans would like us to believe that this is something that voters are sort of super polarized on, that we're evenly split down the middle. And that's just not true. Voters want abortion to be legal, even in red states, even in purple states. That's why we're seeing attacks on democracy. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. Now, while news was breaking in the Mar-a-Lago investigation today, we learned of a significant development in the other case that special counsel Jack Smith is working on. A D.C. grand jury has subpoenaed former Trump advisor Steve Bannon in the investigation into January 6th. NBC News reports the subpoena was sent out in May 
requesting documents and testimony from Donald Trump's former chief White House strategist and, and longtime ally. Given what we know about Bannon's actions and his proximity to Trump, both before and after the 2020 election, the special counsel will likely have quite a few questions. Here is Steve Bannon just a few days before voters went to the polls. And what Trump's going to do is just declare victory, right? He's going to declare victory. But that doesn't mean he's the winner. He's just going to say he's the winner. Prescient. The special counsel may also bring up a phone call Mr. Bannon made to President Trump in late December, urging Trump to take action on a certain upcoming calendar date. Quote, people are going to go, what the F is going on here? We're going to bury Biden on January 6th, effing bury him. The special counsel may want details about what happened in the command center at the Willard Hotel, where Bannon and assorted Trump loyalists strategized to overturn the results of the 2020 election. There may also be more than a few questions about this comment that Bannon made on his podcast the very day before the Capitol attack. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's all converging. And now we're on, as they say, the point of attack, right? The point of attack tomorrow. I'll tell you this. It's not going to happen like you think it's going to happen. Okay. It's going to be quite extraordinarily different. And all I can say is strap in. Joining me now is California Congressman and member of the January 6th committee, Adam Schiff. Congressman Schiff, thanks for joining me on this big news night. Um, you know, I wonder if you, how you see Bannon's role and whether you see it as large as, say, Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who I believe told Bob Woodward and uh, Bob Costa for their book, Peril, he said it was a planned revolution, according to Woodward's reporting of Mark Milley. Steve Bannon's vision coming to life. Bring it all down, blow it up, burn it and emerge with power. I mean, do you see Bannon as the architect of the January 6th insurrection? Uh, I certainly see him as one of the leading uh, voices, proponents of this uh, effort to delegitimize the election, to uh, stir up people on January 6th, uh, and potentially his role in inciting the violence of that day. Uh, there were a few people closer to Donald Trump. Uh, now, they had an on-again, off-again relationship, but it appears to have been very much on again uh, in the weeks and months leading up uh, to January 6th. Uh, so I think the special counsel is going to be very interested in the conversations he had with Trump uh, in why he was able to predict uh, or appear to predict the violence that would take place on January 6th. Uh, what was going on in that war room at the Willard Hotel, uh, which, you know, Roger Stone and others of the present sort of inner malicious circle uh, gathered to strategize about uh, trying to overturn the election. Uh, so I think he is a key witness. And this is another indication that the special counsel's investigation is likely nearing its end. Yeah, well, that's let's return to that for a minute. Uh, but when you talk about the war room, the, the, the convention of baddies, as it were, what questions do you have about what transpired at the Willard Hotel in the hours leading up to January 6th? Well, I, I think of, of most uh, importance is, you know, those that were plotting and planning on January 5th, what did they understand was going to take place the next day? Uh, how aware were they of the likelihood of violence? So what relationship did they have with these uh, white nationalist groups, the three percenters, the Oath Keepers, the Praetorian uh, Guard, etc.? cetera? Uh, and what did they communicate to the president? What did the president know? What was his involvement? Uh, those are, I think, some of the key questions. At the end of the day, for the special counsel, 
it all gets down to the president's knowledge and intent. Uh, there's certainly some powerful evidence, uh, such as when he's on the mall on January 6th, and he's told that people won't go through the metal detectors because they don't want their weapons taken away. And his response, his response is, well, then take down the effing mags. They're not here to hurt him. Uh, how does he know that they're not there to hurt him? What he, may have he discussed uh, with people like Bannon? Uh, these are, I think, key questions that the grand jury is going to want to know. You just um, uh, offered a, a deep tease, as they say in our industry, that you think this is indicative of the special counsel's probe wrapping up. Can, can you talk to me a little bit more about that? Because I think from the outside, the fact that he's still issuing, they're still issuing subpoenas, the fact that witnesses are still coming in has led some folks to say, oh, it's going to be a while before there's any charging decisions in the January 6th investigation. You seem to think otherwise. Why is that? Well, because if you look at the nature of the witnesses that he's bringing in, uh, people like the former president, Mike Pence, and now Steve Bannon, these are people very close to the president. You don't bring them in until basically you brought in everyone else. You've gotten all the documents you think you're going to get. You know you're only going to get one crack at these witnesses, so you want to be as prepared as possible. Uh, you may not, in fact, expect necessarily that you're going to get testimony from all of them. Uh, Bannon tried unsuccessfully to claim executive privilege. He's sentenced to four months for his obstruction of Congress. Uh, that That is not going to be available to him in the grand jury, but he might end up pleading the fifth. Uh, so it, it won't necessarily mean that they're going to get all the, the goods uh, in the testimony of these last witnesses, but I think it does mean that they've exhausted all the lower-level witnesses. They're just at the very top now, uh, and then they've got to make a decision, do we indict or don't we? Do you think that um, the the fact that we have reporting that uh, uh, President Trump is a target of the Mar-a-Lago probe, that that we have indications, though not confirmation, that that probe may be wrapping up? Do you think that uh, affects in any way the way the special counsel is dealing with or thinking about a charging decision in the January 6th case, which arguably is uh, sort of more momentous in the scale of criminality potentially than Mar-a-Lago? Uh, you know, I think it is more momentous. Uh, certainly that was the focus of our efforts on the January 6th committee, given that it was the first uh, incidents in our history of an attempt to thwart the peaceful transfer of power. Uh, if the reporting is accurate and he's received a target letter on the Mar-a-Lago investigation, and uh, I don't know if there's any reporting that he has received the same kind of letter on January 6th, if he hasn't, that would indicate that the Mar-a-Lago investigation may be more advanced than January 6th, closer to resolution. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that probably one of the things special counsel is thinking right now is the presidential campaign is getting further and further along. The department wants to act as far in advance of the election as possible so as not to be perceived as influencing the election. Uh, so I think he probably feels and should feel a sense of urgency They've taken far too long to get to this point uh, before the special counsel was brought on board, but he seems to be moving with great speed. Can I get your reaction to the fact that Mark Meadows, uh, we have reporting that Mark Meadows has testified to a grand jury on both uh, the Mar-a-Lago investigation and the January 6th probe? Uh, you know, he is one of those key witnesses that has relevant evidence, uh, I'm sure, on both of those investigations. Uh, you know, we in the January 6th committee uh, had serious questions we never really got answered about classified documents that were brought to the White House that he was knowing of. Uh, we don't know exactly what happened to some of those documents. Uh, so I think he's a potentially key witness uh, in both investigations. 
Meadows has been all over the map, at times willing to cooperate, at times trying to thwart cooperation. Uh, who knows sort of what his attitude was when he was brought before the grand jury. But, uh, but I would hope that uh, special counsel, given the, the more powerful tools they have to get answers, got answers from Mark Meadows. Do you think he might be a cooperating witness at this point, given the fact that he has been, as you rightfully point out, all over the map on this and has been largely quiet and not on Trump land's radar for the last several weeks? Uh, it's certainly possible. You know, like so many of these people, they don't have any core convictions. Uh, there's no ethical compass. There's no fixed ideology. Uh, they don't really stand for anything. And so this is why Trump has found it so difficult to get loyalty uh, to, from these people. First of all, Trump shows no loyalty to the people who serve him. He chews them out and spits them out, uh, chews them up and spits them out. But similarly, people like Meadows, uh, you know, they, they go with where the wind blows. And so it's, it's more than possible that he's cooperating or cooperating in part. I would imagine, given our experience with Meadows, that whatever he's doing is self-serving. That seems to be the only constant. Yeah. And if the wind's blowing towards a jail cell, you can be sure he'll probably want to avoid that. Congressman Adam Schiff, it is always great to speak with you. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. Still to come this evening, when climate change hits home, turn on your gas stove. We will discuss what House Republicans were doing during this week of apocalyptic air. Plus, when the politics of the 2024 presidential race get weird, who are you going to call? How about the guys from Pod Save America? Stick around for that. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. What I'm about to show you is not Mars. This is the New York City skyline at around two o'clock this afternoon. For context, on the left side is what the skyline typically looks like when the air is not an unearthly shade of orange. The National Weather Service also posted this time lapse, which you can see here. It shows just how quickly things turned fairly apocalyptic in only three hours. This view of the George Washington Bridge, which connects New York City to New Jersey, you can barely even see New Jersey. The hazardous air quality in New York was the worst in the world today. According to the United States Air Quality Index, anything over the number 300 is considered hazardous. By 4 p.m. today, the air quality index in New York City had hit a record-breaking 413, which is so bad that Governor Kathy Hochul announced that New York is distributing 1 million N95 masks across the state tomorrow. 
Now, if you stepped outside today and wondered where did all this smoke come from, why does it feel so hard to breathe and to think and to see? The cause comes from up north, from Canada. Over 400 fires are currently burning in Quebec and Ontario, which is a result of man-made climate change, which is exacerbating the hot and dry conditions that allow wildfires to ignite and to grow. And while the existence of climate change should really no, no longer be up for debate, being able to actually see this haze in the air is weirdly helpful because it makes climate change visible and it makes it immediate. And it is now affecting cities and it is causing air quality hazards from Detroit to Boston and from upstate New York all the way down to North Carolina, including Washington, D.C. There is a sort of tragic irony that this week, as this hazardous air made its way toward the Capitol, House Republicans had an agenda item on the topic of air quality, but it had nothing to do with combating climate change. They were taking a vote on protecting gas stoves. Now, Republicans have been up in arms for months now, saying that the Biden administration wants to cancel America's favorite appliance after a federal agency highlighted the link between natural gas stoves, indoor air pollution and childhood asthma. Scientists at Stanford recently tested a typical New York City apartment with a gas stove, and they found alarming concentrations of nitrogen dioxide, which is a gas that causes asthma and other respiratory illnesses, as well as benzene, which is a carcinogen found in cigarette smoke and car emissions. But even though the Department of Energy is proposing stricter regulations on gas stoves, and some states are actually banning them outright in new constructions because benzene and nitrogen dioxide do not seem like the best sides to go with everybody's scrambled eggs. Despite that, the White House has said that President Biden opposes any type of ban on gas stoves. But Republicans would prefer to stoke fear that President Biden is going to cancel your kitchen. Since day one in the Oval Office, Joe Biden and his administration have been waging war on American energy. Now they are targeting gas stoves, the preferred cooked up appliance for tens of millions of Americans. So House Republicans teed up a bill yesterday that would ban the Biden administration from banning gas stoves. And the bill weirdly and unexpectedly fell victim to Republican infighting as 11 members of the far-right House Freedom Caucus decided to sink it, as well as three other bills, all to punish House Speaker Kevin McCarthy for negotiating over the debt ceiling, which was pretty embarrassing for Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Still, once Republicans patch things up, there is little doubt that this bill to protect gas stoves will come back, even as the realities of climate change become harder and harder to ignore and the air gets harder and harder to breathe. Up next, the hosts of Pod Save America weigh in on what exactly is the point of Mike Pence's candidacy in 2024. That is next. On that day, President Trump also demanded that I choose between him and the Constitution. Now voters will be faced with the same choice. I believe that anyone who puts themselves over the Constitution should never be president of the United States. And anyone who asks someone else to put them over the Constitution should never be president of the United States again. That was former Vice President Mike Pence in Iowa earlier today, formally announcing his campaign for president by talking about what he did at the Capitol on January 6th and making the case against Donald Trump. 
Mr. Pence is now part of a ballooning list of Republican candidates, but it is not quite clear which Republican voters Mr. Pence is courting. He is currently polling in the single digits below four points on average, which is far, far behind Donald Trump and Governor Ron DeSantis. So Pence is now the first president to run, run a challenge to the president who ch to challenge the president who first took him to the White House. But it is unclear what exactly that gets him in 2024. Earlier today, I spoke with John Favreau, John Lovett and Tommy Vitor, hosts of The Great Pod Save America, about this very unusual Republican primary race. And here is some of our conversation. Guys, thank you for doing this. Thank you for your time in advance. Um, there are really no three better people to talk to about what's happening in American politics and democracy Ooh. than you guys right now. Uh, I know really? you, I know you. you well. I mean, actually, there probably okay. are, but <laughs> yeah, we can find I, some good ones. We said yes. <laughs> We're the, am, some of the best people that said yes. <laughs> I am eager for your thoughts. How about that? Um, Great. And specifically, I mean, we it's announcement week as it concerns the Republican Party and its nominees in 2024. And Mike Pence, just a few hours ago, threw his hat officially in the ring with his announcement speech. And in it, as we played at the top of the show, he's invoking the events of January. He's recalling the events of January 6th, which is sort of the case for P Pence's candidacy. Right. But also perhaps ironically, the kryptonite, his kryptonite as it concerns Republican voters. So maybe, um, Favreau, I'll start with you. You know, what do you think of Pence's invocation of the riot at the Capitol? He's the only Republican candidate to do that so far in the field. Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised that he did that in his announcement and, and planned to do that. I mean, I do not think that Mike Pence has much of a constituency in the Republican Party, since there is some segment of the Republican Party that did want to hang him on January 6th. So um, that said, like, I think that the fact that he got up there and was so pointed and sharp about Donald Trump's role in January 6th sort of only highlights how all the other Republican candidates, with like the exception of Chris Christie, um, have been shying away from any kind of criticism of Donald Trump. So good for him. I don't know if it will help him in the primary, because I think if you if you're a voter who um, liked uh, Donald Trump and uh, liked Mike Pence as vice president, but then you saw Mike Pence, you know, supposedly betray Donald Trump. Like, I just don't know where the Venn diagram is. Uh, how much overlap there is between people who, uh, you know, don't like what Donald Trump did on January 6th, but do like sort of the rest of the Trump administration. Yeah, it's Do Donald Trump. Look, he was perfect. He had one bad day. Right. That's, that's, that's the that's Mike Pence. Mike Pence. Yeah, that's... One bad day. <laughs> well, also, and... his kryptonite is not kryptonite. His kryptonite is a group of fascists with a noose trying to kill him at the Capitol. Yeah, right. Well, that's something to yeah. think about. That, I, I, would, I think that's also, and his personality. a death squad. Yes. But John Lovett, I mean. What surprises me about Pence and to some degree, Christie, but really most acutely Pence is his his complete underestimation of the party that he had a role in creating. Right. Like he was literally there in the White House when Donald Trump was president and he saw how Trump changed that party into a group of people that thirst for confrontation, that make grievance the, the sort of animating uh, movement of their lives. He was there when he became, when the White House and the Republican Party became a hotbed of, um, you know, nativism and isolationism, you know, the hawkish neocon of yore. That's not the president 
president that Mike Pence was serving. And yet he is it's almost like he has a Rip Van Winkle syndrome where he's emerging on the presidential stage or the candidate stage, uh, like forgetting about what happened in, in the four years when he was vice president. I have a hard time understanding how a man cannot know what he did for such a long period of time. Do you? No, especially because the other thing Chris Christie and Mike Pence have in common is they're the, the two people that Donald Trump tried to kill. Uh, the, the Chris Christie, you know, he's he has great sound bites now. He's calling him a mirror hog. It's pretty funny. He's good on the stunt making fun of Trump. He acts like someone who stopped supporting Trump in 2017 when he's actually somebody that was with Trump every step of the way when Trump was being exactly the same person he was on January 6th as he was on January 5th and January 4th and every day before that, the reason that Chris Christie was almost killed by Donald Trump is that he was in debate prep with him for 2020. So it's like, it it does, just doesn't make sense, right? They all are trying to pretend that they weren't on board every step of the way until they discover that there might be a niche for them to kind of become anti-Trump in one way or another. And, and also, you know, Pence might sort of fashion himself as a, a community theater Reagan impersonator these days, but he's really like an OG culture warrior. He was uh, on right-wing radio. I believe he famously wrote an op-ed where he attacked Mulan. Was it Mulan? It, it was, was Mulan. Mulan. Yeah, it was, it was Mulan. everyone knows Mulan is a, is a great threat to our country. So he's been a part of these culture wars long before Donald Trump was, uh, was leading the party. Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, to that point, that is a good reminder. Pence is an OG culture warrior, but perhaps doesn't have the the personality that uh, we do, that no. Republican voters demand of their culture warriors this day, which is a beautiful segue, Tommy Vitor, to Ron DeSantis. Um, and we have new reporting in The Washington Post about what kind of candidate culture warrior Ron DeSantis is and wants to be. And I got to quote Jeff Rowe, who is uh, the top advisor to Never Back Down, which is the super PAC that has been supporting Ron DeSantis. And he he said to Axios, the fight for the soul of this party isn't about tax cuts or trade deals. It is a cultural combat that we have as a country. These people know that Ron DeSantis is a cultural warrior for this time. These voters are more angry than they were in 2016. First of all, do you think that's true? I mean, do you think Republican voters are angrier than they were in 2016? Because they were pretty angry in 2016. They were pretty angry in 2016. Are they angrier now? I mean, there's certainly a subset of them who think the election was stolen because they were brainwashed from the the larger-than-life culture war that is Donald Trump, who are probably angrier. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think what Jeff Rowe said there about the party being primarily angry and about culture fights, I think is true. Um, and you can see that this has become DeSantis's sort of sole tactic on the stump. He's attacking woke. Even his wife was wearing a leather jacket that said Florida where woke goes to die uh, outdoors at a biker event on an 85 degree day. So DeSantis is certainly going all in on this idea that uh, politics is downstream of culture, as Andrew Breitbart, I believe, once famously said. You know, pride, is, pride is a little bit about leather. <laughs> it's a pride jacket. Um, yeah. Love it. I, I, DeSantis, uh, some has been made of DeSantis's lack of campaign retail politics uh, and the skill, his, the lack of his skills at re, retail mm -hmm. politics. And there's new reporting in the Washington Post today. I'll read you a quick excerpt about how he is not exactly Mr. Personality on the trail. DeSantis wasn't one for extended conversations, often replying quickly and moving on. Yup, he said when a young man thanked him for a signature. Got it? He asked as the next photo snapped. All right. The governor had some deeper exchanges on his trip, but he often met information from voters with a couple of words. Oh, nice. Oh, cool. Oh, great. I mean, so on, on the one hand, it's if you run for president, 
you probably need to be good at the at, at the and the grip and the grin, right? You got to be good mm-hmm. at talking to voters, right? I mean, or or is DeSantis's candidacy staked out in this very specific territory of I'm a culture warrior and I'm not Donald Trump and nothing else matters? Look, I, I don't know. I don't know what will be enough to make people think Ron DeSantis should be president. I have trouble understanding how a person could think that. But man, he's such an odd guy. He comes across so weird on the stump. And you can already see Donald Trump starting to circle, wanting to call this guy weird. He's yeah, just an sure. odd guy. And, you and you know, he, he does this strange... He's called uh, him everything else already. Yeah, there's not much left. He's not really circling around much. Yeah, but the uh, <laughs> but like he does this weird uh, uh, Twitter space with Elon. He goes on and on about these like esoteric topics that people really don't know about. Even his spokesperson going to Axios and being like the culture war is the fight of our time. But then he 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 goes on about topics that are important to like the tiniest fringe, not just of like. Forget, forget like the the typical person. Even like the typical Republican isn't as a keyed in to some of these sort of like these like culture fights that Ron DeSantis is so focused on. So the combination of having absolutely no charisma, just none whatsoever, plus kind of this sort of like Walter Peck from Ghostbusters. I'm going to huh. take on the, f- <laughs> I'm going to take it. Can you bleep that? What are we allowed to say? I'm going to yeah. take on the EPA. I'm going to take on Disney and I'm going to place where woke goes to die. It's just like, it's so unappealing on such a fundamental level. And it's like, People want to like this person at the end of the day. He speaks right-wing internet. He's like the CRT of the DEI to the ESG. You're like, buddy, what are you talking about? We're going to stop the Fed from releasing a digital currency. And it's like, what are you talking about? I mean, the presidency is you're inviting someone basically into your home for four years because you're going to watch them on TV. You're going to watch them on all of your screens all the time. And you want to be able to hang with that person or at least not yeah. hate them. All right. And like, honestly, for, for a lot of the Republican party for Trump, Trump was someone that was like entertaining to them, you for know? Sure. And so <laughs> and Alex, I think my favorite part of that Washington post story you're mentioning is uh, there was a world war two veteran at DeSantis's event and yes. someone introduced DeSantis to this veteran. And then someone else came up to him again later and was like, Hey, sir, there's a world war two veteran. At this event. He's like, yeah, I know. I already met the guy. I love that. That's, I also just, but what's funny too about just like watching the Ron DeSantis campaign put Ron DeSantis on his feet is like there was this run up to him announcing where it was like, oh no, is he more, is he more electable than Donald Trump? Here's the guy that's going to beat Donald Trump and he's the one that's going to be able to beat the Democrats. And then he signs a six week abortion ban, which is just as unpopular a thing as a person can do. And then he starts talking to regular people. There's a great video where someone says like, hi, I'm Rick. He's like, okay. <laughs> Just complete devoid of personality. I love it. If you liked more of that, if you want more of that, and if you like that, I will be joining John, John, and Tommy this coming Monday for a live taping of Pod Save America at the Tribeca Film Festival here in New York. We will be joined by special guests, New York Attorney General Letitia James, a person named Hillary Clinton, and comedian Roy Wood Jr. of The Daily Show. When we come back... We have one more story for you this evening, and it is about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and his billionaire buddy, Harlan Crow. Stay tuned for that. The newest member of the Supreme Court, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, reported today that she received a $1,200 congratulatory floral arrangement from Oprah Winfrey. Thanks, Oprah. Justices Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett all reported income from teaching. And Justice Elena Kagan listed earnings from renting a parking space she owns in Washington, D.C.
All of these details and more were included in the justice's 2022 financial disclosures after the Supreme Court adopted new ethics rules this year requiring justices to provide a fuller accounting of their finances and received gifts. That includes gifts that constitute personal hospitality, a category that has come under intense scrutiny because of explosive reporting from ProPublica about the many luxurious gifts Justice Clarence Thomas had been receiving from Texas billionaire and Republican megadonor Harlan Crow all in the name of personal hospitality. So what did Justice Thomas and his 2022 financial disclosure contain? We are going to have to wait a little longer to find out because Justice Thomas has requested a 90-day extension. That does it for us tonight. I'll see you again tomorrow.